Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. Now, public education is not private education because it is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. All children are welcome at the door of a public school. It should be public in ownership and control, and it used to be, but uh, we now have public-private partnerships, unfortunately. It should be also the only one that is publicly funded, because it is the only one that can be publicly accountable, and we'll be talking about that today. And above all, if our politicians took ministerial responsibility really, 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 Seriously, in a democracy, we would have a provision of an A1, first class, best, best possible practice public system in Australia. And we don't. We don't for a number of reasons. We don't because our politicians have gone backwards, back into the 18th century, and they are giving public money to private education. And we have this really quite vicious ideology known as neoliberalism that's not helping matters at all. And we also have just downright greed, the greed for profit. And there's a lot of profiteering to be made on the backs of insecure, aspirational parents. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info and first up today, we will give you our latest press release. Later, because today, believe it or not, we're going to talk about um, NAPLAN and we're also going to talk about Gonski 2.0. But um, And we don't usually get involved in curriculum debates, but... Um, We've decided that we will have a a look at this and uh, we'll be also looking at a very interesting interview and we'll read it out to you actually between a gentleman called Greg Asham who's a teacher, a blogger and a PhD candidate living and working in Australia and another gentleman in Western Australia called Glenn Savage who writes for The Conversation which is a not-for-profit academic website for different educationists and so on. And it's a very interesting interview indeed. And we've got it from the Save Our Schools website. And if you want to, if you want to see it, then you can also uh, go up to the Save Our Schools website or the DOGS website on their media uh, section and you can find this. And then later, even later, because unfortunately Robert's here, but uh, his voice is not with him, unfortunately. Uh, He wants me to finish what he started last week, which is the article that was telling us all about what's happening in the United States. But first of all, our press release 754. A diversion from privatisation, marketisation and payment by results. Dogs have always been reluctant to get involved in debates on curriculum fads, testing procedures and classroom technicalities. 
Their main goal has always been the protection and promotion of public education and the corollary opposition of public funding to private religious schools. It must be noted, however, that the Gillard's NAPLAN scheme opened the way for greater accountability from the private sector and the My School website has enabled public school supporters to catch definite glimpses of where the Australian taxpayers' money, billions of it, has been actually going in the private sector. Gonski 1.0 exposed the extraordinary levels of inequality both within and between the Australian public and private systems of education. It became blatantly obvious that the public systems needed huge injections of money to right what has become a grievous wrong caused by half a century of state aid to private schools. There was some hope of more funds at some distant time. That was back in 2013, remember? But with a change of government, this became funds on the never-never. Meanwhile, with a combination of new technology, NAPLAN testing, international testing and the MySchool website, these glaring inequalities in public funding of private and public schools were and are still there for all to see. By 2014, the new Federal Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham, an ex-state school graduate actually from uh, South Australia, realised that he was sitting on a powder keg of not only international ratings and growing educational inequalities between private and public sectors, Auditor General's reports indicated a veritable Augean stables of accountability for the billions being provided with minimum strings attached to the Catholic education offices and so-called independent schools. In trying to assert even the minimum amount of ministerial responsibility, Birmingham raised the usual hornet's nest of Catholic votes and threats. And at the classroom level, with NAPLAN testing, parents and teachers have become restive. Would these lead to automatic testing of teachers themselves and a return to the 19th century system of payment by results? Many public school teachers are the servants of the disadvantaged. Would they and their students be blamed as victims for poor results? In the final analysis... In a democracy, he who pays the piper should call the tune. But this is becoming ever more difficult for Education Minister Birmingham. Or is it? Now, the usual political tactic in these circumstances is to create a diversion. And so we had Gonski 2.0. But Gonski 2.0 under the coalition did not deal with inequalities as Gonski 1.0 under Gillard did. It dealt with classroom and curriculum issues, didn't it? In many ways, the report reflects a smorgasbord of popular ideas that have been doing the rounds for some time. And, of course, it gave a tremendous amount of ammunition to people like Kevin Donnelly, who is a consultant and research, uh, researcher at the Catholic University. Now, these ideas that Gonski 2.0 came up with include Professor... There's nothing new about them. Professor John Hattie's mantra that young people should gain a year of learning growth from a year of schooling along with other claims about the importance of quality teachers, early years learning and school leadership. Now, as Glenn Savage notes in his article in The Conversation, and we've given you the um, website there, educators could be forgiven for seeing the Gonski two arguments as yawn-worthy, not because they're wrong, but because they've been repeated ad nauseum. Teachers want resources and they want uh, supports and they want just plain money in their schools. Despite this, the report is also deeply radical in scope and vision, especially in its focus on overhauling core aspects of curriculum, assessment and reporting.
Gonski 2.0 places significant faith in the power of data, evidence, technology and personalisation of learning to drive improvement and help the nation cast off the shackles of its industrial model of schooling. The brave new world of technology. Now, what does Gonski 2.0 actually recommend? First of all, it recommends individualising learning. That's the first recommendation. They talk about embedding a focus on individual student achievement through continuous learning progress with the expectation that each student should achieve at least one year's growth throughout each year of schooling. Now, secondly, they also say that they should base learning on progression instead of an annual package of curriculum content. Thirdly, they recommend that the creation of a new online assessment tool to measure learning progression be created and support should be provided to teachers in the form of this online formative assessment tool because it would assist them to steadily and readily identify the stage of learning a student has reached and provide a choice of possible appropriate interventions. Fourthly, they recommend establishing a National Research and Evidence Institute to drive better practice and innovation. Or oh, there's some jobs for someone there. Now, it makes a number of other recommendations to supplement the major changes. They want a National Research and Evidence Institute to coordinate and disseminate the best practices. And that was actually what Labor was promising to do with an evidence institute for schools if they were elected. They also recommend to develop an online and on-demand formative assessment tool to be based on revised national curriculum learning progressions. They also uh, recommend the introduction of a national unique student identifier. Gee, <laughs> unique student identifier for all students to be used throughout schooling. So no privacy for students or children there, is there? This would enable the consistent tracking of students if they move between schools or systems. They also mention that you should privatise literacy and numeracy, particularly in the early years, to ensure young people have necessary foundations. They also recommend that you should conduct a comprehensive national review into years 11 and 12 with a focus on objectives, curriculum, assessment provisions and delivery structures. Well, there's plenty of jargon in that. Dogs and many public school teachers have been here before. Public school teachers, we know, we've been there are in the front line with disadvantaged students. If they're provided with resources, they actually have many, many resource uh, and success stories. And they know all about individual students and how they learn and how well they're doing in their, in their, in their, in their classrooms if they have good classroom technique and they know their children. Gonski's proposed changes, particularly those resting on technological advancements, will actually open the door to edu businesses. They could also create new opportunities for edupreneurs whose work seems, seeks to profit from translating what works into action in the classroom. And the lack of accountability of public money in our private sector will escalate even further into these for-profit exercises. Now, dogs are not alone in thinking all of this. Below is a comment to an insightful interview, that which we'll be reading to you later, <coughs> between Greg Ashman and Glenn Savage, who are over in Western Australia. And on their website, or on the, on, sorry, uh, Yes, Greg Ashman's and Glenn Savage's uh, 
websites, there was this very interesting reaction, a comment. I always like comments. The dogs are very interested in comments. Mitch had this to say. One of the big things holding back Australian education is our fascination with wasting government money on financially selective schools. Although everyone complains about seven different systems following the nuance of the Constitution and leaving it to the states may actually be a better thing for us. There may be positives of a learning progressions approach, but there will also certainly be negatives and there hasn't been a proper evaluation of these. And the detail in the Gonski 2.0 was very low. Now, we're going to read you an interview uh, between uh, Asham and Savage. And uh, Mitch points out that in this interview, Glenn was hesitant to enter the tradition progressive debate on curriculum or pedagogy, but he did say some things he'd never see anybody say anywhere else so forcibly. And you'll hear when we read it, this statement. We need to be careful, and this actually is the dog's position, and why this, this press release from myself and Robert is a very unusual one. We need to be very careful not to get caught up in curriculum fads that do much to celebrate the notion of transcending so-called silo disciplines in favour of what, in reality, can often be an atmospheric assemblage of dispositions we've apparently supposed to structure learning around. And Mitch says, don't you know that saying this is enough to get your education academic credentials revoked? So... uh, In this program today, dogs are going where they don't usually go because they regard this curriculum diversion of Gonski 2.0 as that, a diversion. Uh, That doesn't mean to say that talking about how children learn and how they can be best um, dealt with in school by uh, teachers is not very important, but that is actually not dogs' business. It's dog's business to make sure that good teachers are properly resourced in public schools. But um, we are diverting because I thought that perhaps it would be of use to see what Gonski 2.0 said and what they didn't say and how some people are in fact reacting to it and dogs are, are noting how, in fact, if Gonski 2.0 is put into effect, the people who can see that there's a buck to be made in the edu business will be there in droves. And we have already seen in Victoria how there has been corruption, even within our own education department, uh, with people who have seen the benefits of being a, quote, contractor and have uh, leached a great deal of public money into their own private businesses. This is going on in America, particularly with their charter schools and so on. But it would be a tragedy if Gonski 2.0 opened our public schools up to edu-businesses and contractors and consultants. There's been enough of it already. There's been enough of it in Telstra and elsewhere. We're seeing what privatisation has done to our electricity and communications industry. We don't necessarily want that to happen to our public systems any further than it has done. Uh, So we'll have a bit of a break and then Dale and I will uh, read to you a very interesting interview between the two educationists over in Western Australia. Each year, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival curates world-class, local and international features direct from some of the hottest, most prestigious documentary film festivals in the world, like Cannes, Doc New York City, South by Southwest and Sundance. This year, opening night is on Friday the 6th of July at 7pm at Cinema Nova Carlton. The festival kicks off with Film Worker, the incredible true story of Stanley Kubrick's mysterious assistant. 
For more details, go to mdff.org.au. See you there. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. days of course there's good things about technology and about our computers because people who feel that they don't don't have a say or nobody's listening to them and they have something to say set up their own blog and there's a lot of supporters of public education around the world and around Australia who have these blogs and the dogs like to read their stuff and and give them a voice here of course on 3CR. So uh, the new technology is not necessarily all bad at all. Now, one of these people is a a guy called Greg Ashman, and he's over in Western Australia. Greg is a teacher, a blogger, and he's a PhD candidate living and working in Australia. And everything he says he writes reflects his own personal opinion and does not necessarily represent the views of his employer or any other organisation. So that's interesting. And he has a blog called, and I like this, Filling the Pale. And the quote at the top of this is, Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. As W.B. Yates never said. So on his homepage, he has uh, an interview and he has this to say. I have been reading Glenn Savage's articles for some time and so have the dogs, as you can see from our latest press release, 754. And he's very interested in his contributions to the conversation. The conversation is also um, a very interesting website, which is run by academics. It's a non-profit organisation, although the University of Western Australia and I think Swinburne University and a few universities make contributions to it. But a lot of other people make donations as well. Now, on the conversation... um, Glenn, who is a senior lecturer in education policy and sociology at the University of Western Australia, explores the policy aspect of educational initiatives. So uh, Greg Ashman thought it would be good to interview Glenn on the Gonski 2.0 review 
given that Greg has been posting a lot on this topic on his, on his blog and he thought that Glenn Savage could offer a different perspective and Glenn Savage agreed. So this is it. Now I will be Greg Ashman asking questions and Dale will be Glenn Savage giving a response. Here is the first question. As an analyst of education policy, was Gonski 2.0 what you were expecting? Yes and no. When the federal government commissioned this report, one could almost hear a collective sigh among education experts and stakeholders across the nation. The risk was always that this report would produce yet another list of tips and tricks about what works in schools, which would do little more than reinforce what we already know from existing research. Skeptics have been proven both right and wrong in this regard. On the one hand, as I argued in a piece for the conversation last week, the report reflects a smorgasbord of popular ideas that have been doing the rounds for some time, such as John Hattie's mantra that young people should gain a year of learning growth from a year of schooling, along with well-worn claims about the importance of quality teachers, early years learning and school leadership. These arguments are entirely unsurprising. For the most part, these ideas tell us nothing new. Even worse, the reinforcement of these ideas largely repeats, but often not as clearly, previous reports that have recently been conducted into effective practices in schools. Take, as just one example, the 2017 report High Impact Teaching Strategies, Excellence in Teaching and Learning, released in Victoria last year. In many ways, that report was much more readable, usable and succinct than Gonski 2.0. On the other hand, however, while Gonski 2.0 does all these unsurprising things, it is also radical in parts, particularly in terms of its position on overhauling core aspects of curriculum, assessment and reporting. For example, a central idea in the report to move away from an age-based curriculum and towards one based on learning progressions is a very radical proposal and one that should not be taken lightly. Other ideas, like instilling a growth mindset in students, also appear to come out of left field to some extent and are presented in ways that do not sufficiently reflect existing research. But I'll come back to the growth mindset in a moment. Well, this is the second question that Greg Asham asked. I can't decide whether Gonski 2.0 heralds a revolution in education in Australia. You call it deeply radical in scope and vision in your piece for the conversation. Or whether the lack of detail means it will change little. Where do you stand on all that? I think it's important to distinguish between the world of rhetoric and recommendations on the one hand and the actual translation of ideas into policies and practices on the other. With this report, I do think that some of the recommendations concerning curriculum assessment and reporting are radical and, if implemented, would require a monumental reworking of the teaching and learning process. Discarding a curriculum structure based on year levels, for example, might sound very agile and innovative in theory, but in practice could be a logistical nightmare for teachers working at the chalk face. I think we need serious debate about whether these ideas pass muster before we change, before we charge forth into the reform wilderness once again. This is especially the case given major reforms and investments over the past decade have had little or no impact on student achievement. So why should we think another round of major surgery will work this time? From a different angle, as a researcher with a strong focus on federalism and national schooling reform, I think this report, being a federally commissioned report, is radical, given the extent to which it seeks to overhaul schooling policies and practices that are ultimately state responsibilities. Nearly all of the recommendations in the report relate to state responsibilities. I'm interested in how, it's, how it is that schooling policy has evolved to the extent that we have now the federal government playing such a heavy hand. For example, as part of my current 
Australian Research Council grant, I've conducted a very large number of interviews with senior bureaucrats across the nation, and the overwhelming message from state-level policymakers is that while they accept the federal government has an important role to play in schools, the past two decades of reform represent unprecedented levels of federal government overreach into schooling. While there have been certainly positive examples of collaborative federalism at work, most feel recent years have started to veer towards more of a coercive form of federalism, where we have the federal government consistently trying to reshape the work of the states in line with federal political agendas, especially through the use of conditional funding. Gonski 2.0 is exemplary of this tendency, and I can tell you firsthand that policymakers I've spoken with over the past week have great concerns about it from this angle and many others. So question three is, which proposals are, in your view, supported by evidence? Most of the things I see as logical and convincing in the report are things we've already known for many years. We are told early years learning is important. Yes, it is. We're told quality teaching is important. Yes, it is. And so on. I'm much more sceptical, however, with regards to the core proposals relating to curriculum assessment and reporting, and also with regards to the romantic emphasis on the idea of growth mindsets. As I said, I see such ideas as far from easy to implement, potentially very costly and lacking strong enough evidence to justify an overhaul of arrangements at the national level. Once again, on the recommendation to abandon a year-level curriculum, is this really the biggest issue in Australian schooling right now? Is it really the most important reform agenda to be investing in? I'm not convinced it is. I really think we need to take a step back and slow the row before getting caught up in ideas that might, on the surface, appear enticing to some, but in practice could be disastrous to implement. There's simply not enough evidence to suggest doing away with year levels would have any major positive impact. The report seems to make a big leap from canvassing ideas relating to the the potential benefits of doing so to arguing that it should happen but a really major step in the middle has been missed. That is, conducting rigorous research to find out if doing so actually has the desired result in a diverse range of Australian schools. In other words, such major changes shouldn't just be uncritically accepted and rolled out across the nation without significant testing through pilot programs, evaluations and so on. Think of the corporate sector. Major businesses like Apple or Google don't just take ideas that sound good in theory but lack a solid research base and roll them out globally. Instead, they undergo, they undertake rigorous and targeted evaluations to understand impact before making an informed decision to roll out something new. I'm concerned that this report has jumped the gun straight to the let's implement phase. And unfortunately, the federal government seems to be supporting the idea without subjecting it to the critical appraisal it deserves. My my other major concern about the idea to abandon year levels is that I worry that this debate verges on being a major distraction from the key issue that drove the first Gonski report, that is, tackling inequalities in Australian schools through fair and redistributive funding reforms. As the first Gonski report argued, we have unacceptable links between young people's socioeconomic backgrounds and achievement in schools. Will moving away from a year-level based curriculum do anything to address this fundamental structural problem? I don't see how it will do anything in this regard. Well, here's another question. Are there any other flaws that you can see in the Gonski 2.0 proposals? In addition to what I've already said, I do have some concerns that the report is trying to be a bit too hip and progressive, drawing upon contemporary ideas that might appear to sound good in theory, but in some cases are not backed by compelling evidence. Let me return here to the idea of instilling a growth mindset in students. Let me say two things about this. 
First, the report is highly selective in the evidence it does and doesn't use. Put simply, it features research that reflects positive ideas and about growth mindsets while ignoring evidence that provides a more negative appraisal. For example, a major study recently published in leading journal Psycho- Psychological Science has essentially debunked the idea that interventions in schools that seek to instill growth mindset in students have any meaningful impact on student achievement. Yet this major study isn't cited at all in the Gonski report. So before we get too excited about pop psychology, I want to see compelling evidence that Australian taxpayers' money should be tied to interventions based on a theory that is being widely debunked. Second, as a sociologist of education, I think we need to be very careful about claims being made about social class in growth mindset theory. For example, many psychologists with vested interests in promoting the mindset agenda argue that wealthy kids are more likely to have growth mindsets and poor kids are more likely to have fixed mindsets. And the Gonski Report uncritically embraces this work. I can tell you, I've worked in some of the most disadvantaged schools in the Western world and when I arrived at work in the morning, the challenges I faced weren't poor kids with fixed mindsets. (laughs) Instead, I had poor kids who hadn't had breakfast, who were shivering because their parents couldn't afford uniforms or who were suffering trauma from their time in refugee camps. Mindsets had nothing to do with it. As a final point, in terms of flaws in the review, I actually think the reviewers missed the mark on to a large extent, in terms of actually delivering on its aims. For example, the primary purpose of the report was to focus on the effective and efficient use of funding to improve student outcomes and Australia's national performance. In other words, it was supposed to tell us how to better use extra money being committed to schools. Instead, I think it's veered into some interesting territory and areas that in many cases have only tenuous links to its aim. In some sections, it reads more like yet another review of the Australian curriculum, which was not what it was intended to be by any means. I think there's a big difference between identifying strategies that have proved effective in class in classrooms, which this report does in parts, and actually showing these practices to be cost-effective, which this report often does not do. In my view, the report provides a general review of good practices, but does much less to make a convincing case that these practices are the best use of taxpayers' money. Even worse, it actually proposes a range of new major changes that would be potentially very expensive to implement, which raises a question about whether the review helps tackle cost effectiveness or adds new costs into the mix. So how would you characterise the ideology of Gonski 2.0? Is it neoliberal? Is it educationally progressive or is it something else? I don't think the report reflects any clear or identifiable ideological agenda. In terms of neoliberalism, I think we're at a point where neoliberalism risks meaning everything and nothing at the same time. I try not to use it too often in my current work unless I think there's a compelling reason to do so. As I've written previously, my view on neoliberalism is that it primarily refers to modes of governance that rest on modes of reason, that is, ideas and ways of thinking, derived from the field of economics, which assume that individuals are inherently economic beings and that markets are the most effective means for governing populations. We can tag neoliberalism neoliberalism as being various other things, but ultimately I see this economic rationality as being the core. If we proceed with this understanding, then could we see Gonski 2.0 as reflecting neoliberal tendencies? Maybe, maybe not. For example, if this was a debating competition and you asked me to try and convince you that the report was neoliberal in nature and scope, which in reality I have no inclination toward wanting to do, I'd probably pick up on that idea, pick up on the idea that many of the proposed changes in the report, particularly those resting on technological advancements, could powerfully open the door to edu businesses and create new opportunities for edupreneurs whose work 
seeks to profit from translating what works into action in the classroom. There's other aspects I could also include, but would be less convincing. Ultimately, I just don't see the term neoliberal as providing the most compelling lens through which to understand this particular report. In terms of progressive, maybe that word makes some sense in this context, but again, it depends on how we understand the term and put it to work. With regards to curriculum, the term has some purchase in relation to the popular binary between a so-called traditional or conservative curriculum that's more disciplined and knowledge-based versus a so-called progressive curriculum that moves in new directions such as a focus on skills, competencies and capabilities, all of which Gonski 2.0 celebrates. I don't like But I don't like this binary, and I think we need to be careful in buying into these polarised debates. Having taught curriculum theory for many years, my personal view is that I think we need to be careful not to get caught up in curriculum fads that do much to celebrate the notion of transcending so-called siloed discipline in favour of what, in reality, can often be an atmospheric assemblage of dispositions we're apparently supposed to structure learning around. And this is the final question. Gaze into your crystal ball. How do you think Gonski 2.0 will play out from here? I'm inclined to think that many of the more radical ideas in the report will either be scaled back significantly or will fall off the radar completely. Last week I did a lot of media interviews and one of the main messages I tried to get out there was that the nation is already suffering significant reform fatigue from the last decade of unprecedented changes in areas such as curriculum, testing, teaching standards, reporting and school funding. My current research suggests there is limited appetite for future major changes among key stakeholders. I also think it's very likely, and for good reason, that significant resistance would come from within the schools if the more radical reform ideas were to be advanced. I also think much political water needs to pass under the bridge. As I said earlier, nearly all the recommendations relate to state policies. Federal Education Minister Simon Birmingham met with the state and territory education ministers to discuss the report last Friday, but we're still a very long way from securing support in order to translate the recommendations into a national response. And, of course, there's also a bigger question about the next federal election. Will the coalition retain power? If not, what would Labor's approach to the recommendations be to the recommendations in the report? So, as is often the case with schooling reform, many questions remain unanswered. Well, that's all very interesting, isn't it? But there you have uh, two academics speaking together, and the dogs over the years have noticed how the academics are only too happy um, to talk about curriculum or things that are not uh, too politically dangerous. Uh, And that's exactly what Gonski, who is, in his own words, a courtier, a most accomplished courtier, that is what he has done. And Birmingham has uh, enabled them to do it, of course, but the problem of funding and how the funding is done and the accountability for our taxpayers' money, it's still there. It's always the elephant in the room. And that's why the dogs are still here, because the problem hasn't gone away. There are glaring inequalities in our education systems in Australia, and you had even him saying, yes, I've been in schools, I've taught disadvantaged children, The main problem I've got when I've got a group of children in my classroom in the morning is the fact that some of those children have not even had breakfast. How can a little one learn whatever it is they have to learn if they haven't got the fuel in their tummy and working towards their brain? Uh, Let's get back to the basics there. Let's get back to where the children are at and where the teachers of these children, our public school teachers, after all, are the servants of often the poor and the disadvantaged, and you don't find those kind of servants in the wealthy 
private schools where the teachers, whether they like it or not, are the servants of the wealthy, the aspirationals, if you like, and the powerful, the children of the powerful. And they have to watch their P's and Q's. So uh, it's all very interesting. And even if you listen carefully, you would see how that gentleman is aware that the real problem is that the poor children still don't have a chance. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOG, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOG program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses. Refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a Positive relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Now, last week we were giving you information from the Washington Post on what has been happening in the United States of America. For many years, the United States, the USA, uh, held the line as regarding uh, state aid to private schools. In many ways, they didn't understand what was happening in Australia, particularly after 1981. But uh, now that Trump is in power and has got control pretty well now, as we've just seen from the latest uh, case uh, concerning uh, immigration from Muslim countries, the Supreme Court um, is very much going to the right uh, then the situation in America could, could very quickly catch up to Australia as far as privatisation of public education is concerned and even go worse. So we need to have a look at what is happening in America and I'm continuing with the Washington Post articles. Uh, the anatomy of vouchers and charter schools. We actually have a voucher system in Australia but we don't call it that. We give Uh, a great deal of money per capita to children in private schools. That's what vouchers are, excepting that they go first to the parent who then goes and chooses a school. That's the only difference. Voucher programs and charter schools channel public funding to private entities, but in different ways. When students receive a government-funded voucher for a set amount of money, they give the voucher to a private or religious school as payment or partial payment for their tuition. All of the taxpayer funds that end up in the private and religious schools are funds no longer available for public education. And that's what has happened uh, for 50, 60 years in Australia. In the charter school system, The private entities that run the schools receive an allotment of public funds for each student who enrols. The allotments are transferred directly from district schools to the charter schools, shrinking the district public school budgets. The public schools are left with the same fixed expenses but fewer students and therefore less money coming in. 
they almost inevitably deteriorate. A school that could previously afford, say, a librarian, art teacher, nurse or smaller classes can no longer cover their costs. And haven't we seen that in our public system again and again? Edu reformers do not promote vouchers and charter schools to the public as strategies to privatise public education. Instead, they pitch their reforms as way, ways to create choice in K-12 schooling. Haven't we heard this before? Reformers... Well, we call them deformers. Let's not call them reformers. Deformers claim that charter schools and vouchers give low-income students trapped in low-performing schools new choices, and thus their parents, just like wealthy parents, have the power to choose the schools they know are best for their children. Who could possibly object? Deformers have successfully made choice the subject of the policy debate, as they have done in Australia. A candid description of vouchers and charter schools, for example, these policies drain public funds from district public schools in America and channel the money to private entities, students by student, school by school, and this would attract little support uh, if it's well known. But the rhetoric matters, as you know. While Conservatives consciously aim to shift control over kindergarten to year 12 education from government to the private sector, moderates in the education deform camp do not have privatisation as their main goal. Instead, they want to move as many students as possible, as quickly as possible, out of schools with low standardised test scores, and they see the 20-year-old alliance with conservatives as tactical. Yet not only have they ended up buttressing conservatives politically, they practice a kind of triage without thinking through the consequences. By steadily draining resources from district public schools, they undermine the very schools that the overwhelming majority of American children, including low-income children, still attend. Both conservatives and moderates call the school choice the civil right issue of our time. Charter schools claim to be public schools because they receive taxpayer money and in theory are overseen by state-approved authorities. And you'll often find even Catholic schools in Australia claiming to be public in that they perform some kind of public service, even though they are in fact private. But private sector entities, the boards of directors and charter management organisations, manage the schools and they control the finances and the profits. Don't for one moment think that these are in any sense charitable organisations. They are in it for profit. Private management, which can be for profit or non-profit, allows charter schools to avoid the transparency and accountability required of the district public schools. When the public or the press in America ask for documentation, the managers, the CEOs, I suppose you call them, can claim private commercial status. Heard that before? They regularly refuse access to their financial records, data and internal communications, information that public entities are required to make available. In September 2017, for example, investigative reporters requested some emails from Eva Moskowitz, the CEO of Success Academy Charter Schools, Incorporated, a CMO that runs 46 schools in New York City. The company's lawyer responded that the CMO is not itself a charter school or a government agency. It is not in and of itself subject to FOI, that is Freedom of Information Law, or required to even have an appeal process. So you could get rid of a teacher there quite easily. And there wouldn't even be an appeal process. And I'm sure they wouldn't be employing someone who belonged to a union. Charter school lobbies press state governments for as little supervision as possible. 
For example, in California, where more than 1,200 charter schools operate, government audits are neither regular nor proactive. They take place only when a county official suspects fraud and requests an audit, a bit like the Catholic Education Office here in Australia, when you have once every uh, 20, 30 years perhaps an audit from the Auditor-General. And then the Auditor-General is in trouble and loses his job too. That's what happened here in Victoria some, some years, a couple of years ago. Some 90% of charter schools nationwide are not unionised, of course, so unions cannot provide general oversight into these schools. Predictably, inadequate transparency and oversight have led to widespread malfeasance in the sector. In other words, criminality. It's called corruption. Now, the pro-market deformers also champion online virtual schools so the children don't even have to go to school, most of which are privately run, for-profit and notably lucrative. They use the same funding mechanism as charter schools and the operators get public funds for each child who signs up, but they do not have to maintain buildings, provide transportation or pay for full staffs. One teacher can follow the scores, even hundreds of students, as they tap their way through digital lessons on their own computers. And please note that this kind of virtual education is embedded in the Gonski 2.0 report. Very interesting. Uh, we're looking in the future in Australia uh, with all of these interesting curriculum suggestions Spots where consultants, spots where contractors online can make a quick buck at our children's expense. So that's enough for the moment. I'm sorry that we haven't got a, a State Schools of Great Schools segment here. Robert really has almost lost his voice and refuses to let you even hear what he's got. But he has been here and he has been keeping an oversight and giving us the material uh, to work with. So thank you, Robert. Thank you, Dale. And thank you to those people who gave so generously to our Radiothon. And if you want to find out more about us, go to www.adogs.info. And you will find our press releases. And also, if you want to find out what's happening in the media, you can go to our media section there too. So it's bye for now from Dale and Robert and myself. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I did. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill 
Thank you. 